Hello, welcome to the Bright Club Southampton podcast, episode 7. I'm your host, Dave Christensen. Uh, if you're new to Bright Club, thanks for coming for the first time. Um, and uh, thank you for returning if you have been here before with us. Um, for any of you who aren't familiar with what we do, uh, we put on a comedy night uh, roughly every three months uh, with a group of researchers or academics or uh, people with kind of interests in those subjects doing stand-up about their work and their life. Then, for the podcast, we get those people back for a bit of a chat um, to give you a chance to find out a bit more about them and their work. So, this week, uh, we have Jamal Kinsella being interviewed by Nat Day, um, two past performers. Um, Jamal's some kind of psychologist. I'll let him explain. Also, uh, to give you a little bit of a look behind the curtain, uh, I sit in on all of the recordings, um, and although I generally try to stay out of it and stay silent, uh, some of our guests seem desperate to drag me in, so you will hear my laughter in this episode, and Jamal does repeatedly reference my presence, so thanks, Jamal. Anyway, I won't take up any more of your time, uh, so let's do this. started okay so the beginning the very beginning gosh i'm gonna go into the very beginning now so i wanted to do a phd like ever since i realized that i was like my defining characteristic was that i was incredibly nerdy so i think back in sixth form i decided i wanted to be a psychological researcher so when i was in sixth form i decided to um do research as a young scientist with the Nuffield and that like was like the best experience of my life when I was 16. I like worked in a psycholinguistics lab in Manchester University and I really enjoyed it and then kind of my entire focus has been working in different labs since that 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 time of my life. I went to Durham Uni where I studied psychology, I worked there for a bit. I worked in Munich over the summer of 2012 um and that particularly in Munich I was really like I know I want to do a PhD because the program I was on was like trying to expose undergraduates to academic research um quite formal it ended with a uh poster presentation in Cambridge and um and they just really wanted us to like get a taste for what doing research was like so ever since then I wanted to do a PhD but I didn't have a lot of success applying for PhDs the 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 one I'm doing the one I got in Southampton University was the fifth that I got like seriously considered for, you know, interview stage. Um, so, and I, I must have applied for about 30, 40, you know, in general. And so the PhD I ended up de- doing was the most tangentially in psychological research of all the ones I applied for. It was in an engineering department. So um, I used to research human response to vibration. That was the first PhD I undertook uh when i got to southampton but because of <clears throat> issues with the supervisory team and the research group uh being very complicated basically lots of people left lots of people uh weren't really involved formally enough in the project for me to feel like i could succeed 
I negotiated for a while with the engineering uh, department in Southampton and I managed to get funding for a new project that I'm going to start in a couple of weeks. And so that is, so if you say, ask me about my PhD, do you mean the, the first one or the second one? <laughs> <laughs> that was the longest way round to get to that. <laughs> my life is not simple. I wish it were sometimes, but sadly it's not. Uh, okay, so we'll start with the we'll start with the first PhD, cool. and then and then we'll go on to the All right. second PhD. That's cool. I know more about the first one. <laughs> yeah, I <I'm> know. <laughs> so, what was your first PhD about aside from being an engine? Well, trying to pretend to be an engineer That's in right, disguise. Exactly. I've actually got a good reason to have imposter syndrome. <laughs> um, I was yeah. I studied human response to vibration. So uh, yes, that is very kinky it involves <laughs> vibrating people for money <laughs> um uh so yeah in in the uh it was called the human factors research unit we're interested in human factors so that's also called ergonomics so what the whole group are interested in is like as humans how do we use like engineering tools so you know what are the ergonomics of chairs what are the ergonomics of cars so i was interested in uh, studying how humans respond to vibration and the human factors around vibration. So things that vibrate like cars, how do they make people feel? And so I'm sure you can see how it's got a psychological angle. It's about feeling and it's about discomfort. There are other people in my group who used to research motion sickness, which is also really cool. But um, yeah, I researched discomfort towards vibration. So I put people on motion simulators, I shook them around a bit and then I asked them how they felt about that and I my specific project was interested in how different body locations um, might cause us to feel a different level of discomfort so does the vibration at your back feel different than the vibration at your neck so trying to be very interested in localizing the region of discomfort. Hello I'm Jamal Kinsella and I'm a PhD student in the human sciences <laughs> A bit early, but give me a cheer. <laughs> if you're up for three years of constant study and crippling social isolation. <laughs> Those guys over there are a bit weird. You might not want to hang out with them. <laughs> but anyway, thanks, thanks for that. Um, yes, I am a PhD student. I'm in the human sciences. And the great thing about being a PhD student in the human sciences is you get to focus exclusively on one big cutting edge piece of research that has a relevance to all of our lives. So what am I devoting those years of my life to studying? Am I researching how we can generate stem cells in adulthood for better cancer treatments individual to each person? No, I'm not doing that. Am I using my mental health training to investigate and try to solve problems in academia due to the mental health crisis affecting all academics? Nope. Is there funding in that? Anyone? Okay. Um, do I just shake people around until they feel sick? Yes. Yes, that is exactly what I do. So, did you discover anything? That's a good question. Um, I feel like I did, but that's not a very good answer as a scientist. <laughs> but as a psychological scientist, thinking that you feel that you have discovered something is definitely exactly. right. Exactly, yeah. That's, that's the something of that. <laughs> psychological science, to support what you said, though, is we very rarely say we've proven anything. You know, like, we can only ever find, like, evidence for different arguments because it's very... It is, of all the... I consider it a natural science, but it's probably the one that's closest to social science so yeah it's uh yeah the best we can often do is feel like we found something but yeah I didn't 
I haven't written formally my work, and as a result, I feel like I've got data that suggests that it could be a big finding, but I haven't really explored kind of. I haven't explored all the null hypothesis, I haven't explored like everything to say definitely that I found something cool. So um what I think I found <laughs> if I if I if I if I cared enough to do all my stats and write up, <laughs> I think I could show that the region of discomfort of the neck is really influenced by different seating styles um, and different frequencies of vibration whilst you're on a motion simulator. And those findings could be applied to different types of cars that, say for example, cars damp certain frequencies. So that means that they might cause the people in the car, the passengers and the driver, to vibrate quite a lot at certain frequencies, like very fast vibrations or very slow. Or the other way around, they might be sensitive to different types of frequencies. So what my study, what my research could be applied to is suggesting that certain kinds of frequencies will cause discomfort of the neck. And if you know that and you don't want your the person who drives your Nissan car to experience those discomforts, you could design a seat so that that kind of frequency won't influence the driver or the passenger and therefore they won't feel discomfort in that region. So the kind of very bigger picture of the kind of research I was doing would be, let's say you had someone who wanted a car, but they had neck problems. They could be able to commission a seat or be able to do something that would make sure that they wouldn't experience vibration-related discomfort at that body region. Wow. Mm. <laughs> Literally, I never knew any of that. Yeah. That's really interesting. Yeah. Mm. Thank you. Yeah. When you get paid to do something, it's like the world saying, that shit, that shit is good. We like that shit. We want more of this human response to vibration shit. Yeah, fund that shit right now. Why? I don't know. Just shake them. Just do it. We'll, we'll find something once we've done enough. Gender studies? Why would we fund gender studies? We've got equality, right? We're, we're all happy. Women, when they walk up the road at night, don't feel safe. Oh, well, they probably just want to stay inside. They're happy. Men, they're not able to talk about the feelings. Well, they're probably happy, aren't they? That's why they're not doing it. The histories? Why would we fund the histories? What, what, what are they good for? We, this is the past. We know what happened. It's, it's, it's written down. Why do we need to look at it anymore? Britain single-handedly brought civilization to all the known world. It's, it's solved. Now what we need is someone putting people in a chair and exposing them to really uncomfortable vibrations at a series of 13 ranging from 0.5 to 8 hertz. That is important. <laughs> So what about your second PhD, <laughs> the forthcoming? The second one is so much better. You know all that boring stuff I just told you about? <laughs> <laughs> just forget about that. Let's study car accidents. <laughs> so my second PhD will be about, it's still, you know, both of you. Um, oh, no, there's only one of you in the room. <laughs> <laughs> you all know that, that um, when you start a PhD, you, you write some text, don't you? And then it's never really what it ends up being. Yeah. So... Like, if you catch up with me in a year, that might say something completely different. But now what we think it's going to be about <laughs> is um, different demographic groups. And that means, like, different age groups, for example, like young people and older people or inexperienced drivers and experienced drivers. These are different groups. How does their driving behaviour differ 
and how might that influence the likelihood of them making a being a hazard on the road like making car accidents and so what we're able to do is we've got a driving simulator in the transportation research group I'm moving to um, and again this is an engineering but it's a very psychological research group this one much more than the last like this research group is an engineering but most of the members of staff have quite an extensive background in psychology so I already feel like I fit in quite well um, it's a bit more homogenous but I could tell you all day the issues that interdisciplinary research um, it's a lot less glamorous than it sounds um, but yeah so I'm quite happy to be around my kin again and uh, yeah the, the topic itself is not only very psychological interested in the behavior we actually call it decision making so decision making isn't like do I want a tea or a coffee it's more like fast so when psychologists use this word, they're interested in reaction times and how we um, decide between, like, say, for example, in a car, you've got all sorts of decisions you can make between different um, kind of like decisions you can make for safety, like stopping early or turning. Um, we're interested in what causes different decision making in different groups. And what I'd really like to do with the project is add an element of perception, because the reason I got into psychological research, well, my kind of main focus within it is the perceptual world. Like, how does your world feel different to my world? You know, how does vision seem different? How does um, how does your attention work differently? How do you hear things differently? And yeah, there was a bit of that in my last PhD. But um, with this one, what we might be interested in, I hope we can study it, is the attentional biases that differ between different people. So it might be that inexperienced drivers just don't attend to the same information in their visual scene whilst they're driving and research on the driving simulator we have could investigate that as well we have eye trackers in that lab and I've worked with eye trackers before and they're quite powerful to show you where people are moving their eyes which you can then interpret all sorts of things you know like we could you could theoretically imagine a finding that inexperienced drivers search for danger too early or maybe they do the opposite maybe they don't search for danger as much as experienced drivers. I actually don't know, and that's the fun thing about research. Like, you can come up with a question, and then, oh, I want to find out. Like, are they too hasty because they're new drivers? Um, sorry, they're too cautious because they're new drivers, and they're, you know, they want to make sure not to mess up. Or are they the opposite? Are they like, oh, everything will be fine, and then they just mess up. So, yeah, because one thing I want to point out is what the one area of my new PhD that makes me super passionate is a lot of people might think young drivers being involved in car accidents, that must be because they're so risky. But it could theoretically be because they're too cautious. Because if you were too cautious and you were in a country where everyone else was a bit more risky, that could be more risky. That would be make you an outlier on the road. And that would mean that you your odd driving behaviour could put other people at risk, even though you're trying to follow by the book and be cautious. So I don't want to follow the assumption by default anyway without testing it or reading the research first, which is what I need to do next, that they're just riskier, you know? Because it could be that when you've learned to drive, you're actually more by the book than an experienced driver that just kind of has gained an intuition that new drivers won't. So yeah, these are the kind of questions we're thinking of investigating. So much to do and so little time. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> but no, I do enjoy it and I was really excited to start my work in my lab. I, I applied for this PhD because I'm really interested in the human experience. I'm really interested in what we perceive about the world around us and how our brain interprets it. So 
Southampton has in its labs uh, some of the most precise motion simulators in the world. We can take the motions that you experience on your cars and we can reproduce them in laboratory settings and then figure out how that affects your mood, how it affects how, discomfort how, how discomfortable you are, and, and also see how it influences your body. So I'm really, I'm really excited uh, to start working with that really technical equipment. So I go to my supervisors and I say, I want to start with my first experiment. And they say, yeah, you'll, uh, you'll need to experience the vibrations first on the um, horizontal vibrator. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, this is probably just some mistake. It's probably just their shorthand. They've been in the industry for a while. It's fine. Um, but just to be safe, I figure when I get to the lab, I will check the logbook and make sure that the motion simulator, hopefully, is actually as sophisticated as I thought. So, so I, I, I do just that. I have my training. I learn how to do it theoretically, and then I go into the lab, and I go into the logbook, and I finally find the receipt. Yes! And it says, one meter hydraulic horizontal motion simulator. Yeah. 85 pounds from Anne Summers, for fuck's sake. <laughs> I should say, as a scientist, that, that is not actually the receipt. That, that thing, it's not actually received. We do not get our motion simulators from an adult sex shop. That, that wouldn't be very ethical at all. You, in your Bright Club set, you were talking about the horizontal shaker. Mm. So I was a bit curious. Tell us more about the horizontal shaker. Okay. So the horizontal shaker has many names. One is the uh, one meter hydraulic horizontal motion simulator. What is a horizontal shaker? What is a horizontal vibrator? And the one I came up with is a little twitchy because <laughs> of, of all the machines we had in the uh, Human Response to Vibration Center, um, it was a little twitchy or the horizontal shaker that was the smallest. And he was very much like mine, like everyone else was like using the other the really big fancy ones and they always behaved but little twitchy was just this little guy i think he was the oldest and he was uh he's just this like he just like twitches and the reason he's a little twitchy is partly because he shakes you know i can program vibrations into my motion simulator so let's see if i can give people a mental image um there's just a platform like a metal platform literally like a metal sheet of metal um, yeah, that makes sense. It's <laughs> on top of um, on top of like a little platform, um, and this metal sheet you can put chairs on it. So we don't normally have two chairs at a time. Uh, we could have like wooden chairs, but also like car seats. Wooden chairs are often used as a control, and uh, in the kind of research of how people feel about vibration. And yeah, so Little Twitchy is just a platform, metal platform that has chairs on it. And yeah, so when you have to like stand up and get on the platform and strap in the participant and they have like a big red button when they're in the experiment and they compress it in case anything scary happens, like they the experiment starts going wrong or they just get scared. Um, so Little Twitchy is partly Little Twitchy because he shakes. You can program vibrations only horizontally. Uh, so the platform is like a rectangle um, and it only moves left and right um, but uh, but he's also a little twitchy because little twitchy caused me a lot of problems because he kept making like little twitches that we didn't need like like I program a really clean sinusoidal vibration you know going left and right really slowly swaying along and then he'd just do I'm gonna jerk around a little bit it's like no didn't want that <laughs> but 
if I didn't like give him this name, I'd just get angry, you know, like the whole getting angry at technology thing we've all faced. But because I kind of anthropomorphized him a bit, it kind of just made me like really like patient and loving. Like, come on, little Twitchy, you can do it. <laughs> <laughs> so it's weird the kind of shit you come up with to help you get through difficult days in the lab. And Lil Twitchy and his nickname is the best I came up with to help me not go insane as I was in a basement of a uh, audiology centre, which is where I used to work. That's where the lab was. With no light at all, shaking a machine around. It's just, it's just the best I could do. <laughs> <laughs> I understand. I I very I sympathise completely because I was in I was in a completely and utterly dark room all the time as well. It's great, isn't it? But the alternative to a dark room is you know ones that are too bright with artificial light. Yeah. Where it's like because like it could either be too dark, I could keep some of the lights off, or it could just be like boom, you know, intense white light over everything I'm doing, and both of them make you feel kind of disconnected from reality. I think. <laughs> But there's one more funny thing I'll have to tell you about Little Twitchy. Is, um, so it's a horizontal vibrator. It shakes left and right. I described the rectangle to you, right? Yeah. Um, I, someone, someone said to me, oh, yeah. They didn't call it Little Twitchy. They probably called it the horizontal vibrator. Horizontal vibrator can also do fore and aft motion. So rather than lateral, which is left and right, that's forward and back, moving forward and back. And I literally had no idea how for like two months and then someone just said oh yeah you move the seats around 90 degrees <laughs> and i was just like i had no idea i was so confused <laughs> you were expecting some sort of massive yeah yeah it, like right? it had this feature that i didn't understand but it's just like you turn the seats around i had no idea you could do that <laughs> <laughs> Researchers don't always have common sense. I think that's the take-home message. And clearly, I'm not an engineer because that is not a practical thing. <laughs> don't worry, I'd have done. I'd have probably done exactly the same thing, Jeez. if not slightly worse. <laughs> I didn't fit in in that lab at all. <laughs> oh well, the the thing. It's a good thing you're not there, festival. Yeah. <laughs> Oh dear, oh dear, oh dear. You can always laugh at like tragedy once it's passed. <laughs> <laughs> Would you agree? No. <laughs> oh, fuck. <laughs> no, no. We, we saw how bleak I can get. Um. <laughs> okay, speaking of ethics, people often ask me, what do you do when the participant likes vibration? A little bit too much. <laughs> we get the fuck out of there because we've got the right to withdraw as well. <laughs> Ethics is important. So, were you ever, um, did you ever take part in your own experiments and get shaken around mm. for fun? I did try, because the thing is, like, there does need to be someone, like, programming it on the other side in the control room, it was actually called, so mm. that led to some very dramatic, like, dialogue, because the cool thing was, as well, I had a mic that I could talk to the participant on their headphones, so it'd be like, Roger, Roger, do you copy? But anyway, that's besides the point. The point... <laughs> <laughs> the point is, um... Hold on, what was your question? 
did you have a go yourself? Oh yeah, did I have a go? Yeah, I did try. What I uh, yeah, I, I I basically asked some friends to shake me around, but um, yeah, the you know when you you think something's simple because you've done it a thousand times, so I'm like, oh yeah, just follow these instructions. I've drafted you some instructions, and like nothing is clear. <laughs> so yeah, we ended up not going through with that. But I did what I did do a lot of testing in other ways. Like I always tested the seats myself, static without vibration, and I had to like actually report discomfort in those like just how much even when I'm not vibrating do these different seats make me feel different levels of discomfort so yeah and I did get shaken around by my supervisors quite a lot but in my research group a lot of people are doing these experiments and they all need human participants so even though I didn't get to have a go at my experiments so often I had to be in other people's experiments a lot and the general consensus I have is like my experiment which is on discomfort was actually quite fine like it wasn't that bad and other people in my research group would experiment things like how much your body moves you know a very mechanical thing rather than a psychological thing and their experiments were just like so awful like one of them I genuinely wanted to throw up during it and that that's that's just part of the that's just part of the course of this kind of research you know like we're investigating kind of discomfort and like pain and stuff and yeah it's not always fun but the 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 plus side is if you're a participant you get paid a lot of money like 20 pounds for like an hour sometimes so it's pretty decent isn't it like you'd kind of want to earn a living just being shaken around (laughs) you kind of did didn't you (laughs) a little bit yeah yeah, shaking other people. <laughs> I was your human vibrator. At your service. <laughs> oh. <laughs> now that is a job title you want to put on business cards. Yes. <laughs> you need to communicate well, both in and out of the lab. So a funny story for that is I was sitting in a car with a friend and he's feeling a little bit sick. So he says to me, Jamal, I'm feeling a little bit sick. You study this, don't you? What's going on? Why am I feeling sick? So I say to him, I'm also feeling a little bit sick. Really fucking sick of the lack of understanding in the general public about sensory rearrangement theory. And then I throw up in his face. So what made you want to come and do a bright club in the first place? Mm, good question. My first thought was Dave nagging me so much, but no, um, it wasn't that. I um, so my da- <laughs> it was a bit of that. But my my dad is a stand-up comedian, and um, I have a weird relationship with things my dad is, because like my dad, um, my dad's very different to me, um, and uh, but I like him a lot. And yeah, quite often I think, oh, I, I don't want to be like my dad, you know, but because uh, he just he just has different interests to me and I'm like more interested in like science and stuff, right? But but every single time I end up talking to him so much and I start to see the appeal of the way that he lives his life and then I want to like try it out. But I actually made sure that my dad wouldn't be around for my Bright Club because he likes to visit so often and he really enjoys Bright Club. But I basically didn't agree to do it until I confirmed that he couldn't come on the day that I would do it <laughs> because basically like I have a thing of just like wanting to do things kind of on my own terms so I didn't really like share much of my set with him um but I knew I wanted to do it because my dad enjoys doing comedy a lot and it's a good influence on me and I think the main reason though was partly because of his influence I saw comedy as a really powerful communication tool like if you can make people laugh you connect to an audience first of all and second of all you can help them 
learn or think about difficult concepts. Like, I really like thinking about social issues and like social justice and stuff. But the people who've sold it best to me have always been funny. You know, people who made me laugh about things and maybe it helps that I have a dark sense of humour. But, you know, like, because it takes a special kind of person to laugh at, like, the oppression of LGBT people or people of colour. But, um, yeah, but genuinely, like, I've really enjoyed comedy about, you know, like, social issues. And um, and I, I would still really like to be someone who could utilise humour in order to help people think about uncomfortable issues and I really enjoy in general just working on my communication skills because I think if everyone valued communication the world would be a better place you know we'd have far fewer conflicts like on an individual level as like friends um, as colleagues and so on but as societies and nations and things like that so yeah maybe that's a bit idealistic but I genuinely see it, it, it links right back to comedy you know like if we can be funny we can help communication we can uh, ease tension and that can help all sorts of things so yeah oh that is a really idealistic way of looking at it <laughs> and a lot more deep <laughs> do you know that's great then thank you <laughs> so do you do you think that bright club has helped you achieve that that f- learning to be funny and using that in future for conflict resolution and yeah, communication definitely i i use humor so much more like I still think I can be quite serious and it's quite funny because I've done about four stand-up sets now um, but I still think of myself primarily as like too serious for most people and it's partially because as I say I want to talk about uncomfortable issues, social things um, but yeah I've definitely started using it more like almost every kind of every time I'm on a platform to communicate with people I think how can I use humour in a way that suits the setting like I personally believe you can even use humour in like an academic conference I think it's a different style you're not going to do a stand-up set at a dry conference about human vibration although maybe you should (laughs) (laughs) but no I think I think I think humour is powerful and I'm trying to use it more I think I have been I'm trying to think of some examples but yeah I uh, I start to think you know the audience being happy and creating an atmosphere like ice breaking in general is really powerful. Like any speaker that can start by breaking the ice in any sense kind of warms himself to the audience um, uh, and herself. Um, and that, that can really help people's listening ability, people's engagement. It's really important to be ethical in the human sciences. <laughs> The participants do this as well, though. You put them on the vibration machine, whatever it's called, vibrator, simulator, don't care. You put them on the machine. And they say stuff, honestly, like, oh, that one made me feel a little bit sick, like being on a roller coaster. But because I'm a scientist, you have to follow lab protocol. You have to say just the right thing. So, paraphrasing a little bit, but I have to say something like, do not give me this metaphor shit. And I cannot use qualitative data. Oh yeah, just tell me what uncomfortable you are! Sorry, I'm shouting at you. I can't use words! It must be numbers! So, in addition to that, in your Bright Club set, you were talking a lot about taking photos of thighs. Mm. Mm. It's completely and utterly bizarre. Why and how and... (laughs) <laughs> you know, just for, I'm sure the people at home are just like, Hampinat? <laughs> 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 
why do why do we insist on taking photos of participants' thighs? That is a very good question, and this is why I think public engagement is so important too. Because sometimes you just need like just this straight talking. You know, what's the deal with this weird shit you do in the lab? <laughs> so. As I say in my set, the, the level of thigh contact is crucially important in human vibration research. Um, basically, so I'm on a chair right now and I'm trying to investigate discomfort. And I also might be interested in like specific body regions, like I said, like maybe the thighs and the, the uh, maybe the thighs and the bum, for example. Um, but, you know, where does the bum start and the thigh end? Who knows? What a philosophical question. But uh, <laughs> so basically, we need to communicate that the level of thigh contact was consistent across participants because if it's like, let's say, for example, um, we have a friend, let's just call him Dave. Dave is very tall. I'm not very tall. So if Dave and I sit on the same seat, he might have an entirely different experience than me. If only Dave could hear us now. He might have an entirely different experience than me because his legs might be all the way down here. I mean, they'd probably be all over the room, knowing Dave. Um, they'd, be, they'd be everywhere. Um, whereas with me, they're all tucked in nice and snug in the little seat. And so if I reported discomfort in my thighs, but Dave didn't, it might be because most of his thighs aren't even on the seat. So what I'm trying to say is, if you're interested in specific body regions, you kind of have to account for individual differences between participants, the fact that they have different dimensions and mechanics. And we didn't actually do that that well. The, the, the level of thigh contact was pretty much the only thing we try to control for. And the way that we do that is by basically the seats are actually really long and Dave would actually fit in in the experiment because that would be fine for him. But me as a participant, I need to have a footrest because, you know, the seat's all the way down here. Um, and, yeah, so we basically just gave footrest for the short participants. But about the photos, so... Normally, you don't need to take photos of their thighs yeah. because you just you just say in the paper that the level of thigh contact is consistent. You say the method, you know. Imagine if in science we had to take photos of everything to prove the things we just say in the method, you know. Science should be better than that. But one of my supervisors was, I think, not necessarily super trusting that I was doing the experiment correctly. And, yeah, I felt a bit micromanaged. But basically, yeah, so the reason I had to take photos of their thighs was because of a paranoid supervisor who thought I would just mess it up. So she wanted to see all the photos, which to me makes it weirder that, like, you know, <laughs> I have to send all the photos to someone <laughs> and, like, they have to inspect the level of thigh contact. Yeah, that your supervisor will spend a couple of hours yeah. looking at thighs <laughs> yeah. every week just to make yeah. sure. I think, I think that impedes the scientific process, in my view, but that's just me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah don't go into thigh science yeah it's, it's not a lucrative area of research <laughs> i know it sounds glamorous now but <laughs> that's really important to be ethical in the human sciences and i know you guys would probably lose your cool but we've got to, we, we can't we can't mess up this stuff but i study discomfort but I can get uncomfortable too. What's that about? Why? Why isn't it stopped? So, funny story for that is I'm with my supervisor in the lab and we're going through a checklist of what needs to happen for the experiment, lots of details and signs. So, so she says, oh, make sure you take photos of all your participants when they're on, on the vibrator. 
Um, because we'll need to reproduce the lab setup and their posture is really important. So even though it's weird to just take someone's photos when they're on some vibration machine or something, whatever it is, I do it because it's, you know, it's lab protocol. Um, but then she says, oh, actually, uh, you should, um, well, it's really important to know the precise level of thigh contact in human vibration research. So we're going to need some photos of thighs up close. <laughs> and I'm like, well, if you say so, I guess if you say it's okay and you've done it before, it must be a normal thing in this field. So I do it. I, I crouch down. I get real close. I'm surprised. And then if this was my participant, she'd be like, whoa, why are you doing that? Can you just not have that photo, please? And I'm like, why? What's the issue? My supervisor would do this all the time, and she didn't have a problem. Why? Oh. She is a small Japanese lady. And I'm a hairy fat man. So, what's next in the world of Jamal's research? Mm. Jamal's research, what even is that? I don't know, but I can I can think of something. Um, so... With my research, as I say, the kind of central core, well, the central core is psychology, but within that, I'm almost always done projects in perception. Like, how do we perceive the world around us? Like, how does your world differ to, differ to my world? And that's the area I'd still really like to go into. I'd really like to research human perception because I think it's philosophically incredibly interesting. It makes us realise that there's not, not one objective world. Like, even if there is, humans can't access it. It's just you know, something that we can study. But the worlds that we live in day by day are unique to all of us. And that's a really interesting area. And uh, half of me wants to research what's philosophically interesting in science, the questions that I might ask myself lying in bed at night. But the other half of me wants to research questions that are more related to social good. So I'm really happy with this coming PhD because it's about something that affects everyone, you know, car accidents, like, is so common for people to get killed on the road and even even people like pedestrians can get killed and it's just it's horrible and it's like this horrible tiger that exists in society and we just accept that sometimes it'll kill our friends and loved ones and and it's just like i just can't believe we do that you know i can't believe that there isn't more trying to prevent like lack of safety on the road so part of me thinks i should go down that route and what's next in these fields well in the kind of safety in cars, a lot of people discuss how maybe it's a bit of a moot point if driverless cars are going to take over. Um, but there are issues with driverless cars in the UK. Like in the UK, we have a lot of cyclists and our roads aren't structured the same ways as they are in the US. They're not computationally simple is how I'd put it. You can't easily, uh, you can't easily program a computer, which driverless cars are, to behave in an appropriate way on a British road as you can in an American road. So I do think it's going to become more of a thing, but I don't know how long it will take. And there are still people dying all the time uh, before that. So definitely we need to research kind of safety in cars more um, still. And then secondly, even if driverless cars took over, what would uh, we'd need to program them to be safe? And some studies have shown that they're actually really good for like normal situations. But the moment something atypical happens, driverless cars don't know what to do, where a human would probably know what to do to avoid, uh, you know, uh, an accident. So 
So therefore, we'd still need to research how they can behave safely. And one of my favorite things about psychology is its overlap with AI, you know, in researching even perception, like visual perception. We also research how can we make computers better able to detect forgery and detect signatures and stuff like that. So, yeah, the computers and humans in psychological research actually overlap quite a lot. And similarly, in perception, there's a similar kind of issue of like, you know, when we research perception, we need to think about how much should we use the human brain as analogous to a computer? Like how similar are they really? Or should we treat them as separate entities? So yeah, I think I've got more questions than answers about your question, but I know I know what the right questions are. I don't know how to answer them. <laughs> <laughs> That's science. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> cool, cool. Well, that's a great question, thank you. Yeah, so I've um, told you a lot about my set. I'm going to tell you why I'm doing all this weird stuff, so I should probably do that before we think I'm a very different kind of scientist. Um, well, I always go back to that song. It's that song everyone thinks of when they think of human vibration work, you know? It's all about having good feelings and excitations all around. I like big butts and I cannot lie. Because that's honestly what the research is like. We are really encouraged to look at how your bum feels because everyone reports that their bum gets uncomfortable at these short experiments that scientists do. But I don't know about you guys, but I've sat on long trains and long coach journeys. It's not my bum, it's my neck or my back. It's, it's the tension of holding myself upright. But if all of our experiments are just really short and don't really look at things in the real world, we'd never really know that. So I'm trying to devise a method by which we can kind of understand how you feel at your neck and your back and how all those bad vibes contribute to your experiences. Thanks, thanks for listening. So, Jamal, you do a public engagement project. Mm. Do you want to tell us about it? Yeah, you may have heard of it. It's called The Science Room. So at The Science Room, scientists address questions that are asked by members of the community in Hampshire and beyond. I say beyond because even though we do all our events in Hampshire, these are like interactive events where people get to chat to the scientist. It's inspired entirely by the questions that people have asked. Um, at these events, we also collect questions that we just answer in an online space. So we're really trying to embody this uh, ideal of community-led science, that their imagination and their curiosity is inspiring a scientific process because scientists then go out and investigate those questions that people care about and that inspires our events too and yeah i've been doing it for gosh it'll be two years now um so yeah it's uh i was one of the founders of the project and i've been working on it ever since and yeah we just really try to show people that science is for them and they can ask anything they want and that whatever they think of will kind of do something with. So as an example, we record podcasts about our most philosophical questions because sometimes you don't want like a definite answer from a scientist. You want the kind of discussion like we're doing now. And for that, we think that medium of a podcast works best. But we also have a kind of letter from the scientist and articles for the more straight questions like, why is the sky blue? Um, did homosexuality kill off the dinosaurs? <laughs> <laughs> but we also have uh, infographics and songs as well, and we really try to be science meets creativity as well. So we're, uh, yeah, try to do a bit of everything. Um, very scattergun, but it's, uh, it's been a lot of fun, and I really hope that the project encourages a sense of community of people who interact, scientists and science enthusiasts, just all getting together and chatting about this stuff. But I'm also really hoping that 
the idea that the community are listened to is something that's more thought about in terms of the academic process because yeah i definitely think there is a bit of an ivory tower problem with academia and science in general things like bright club as well are great ways of showing that scientists are just real people and i'm really on board with those ideals too so yeah hmm. and uh you did if i'm not mistaken you did a science room meets comedy called the sciencing room Ooh, yes not? yes we did so tell it's... us all about the sciencing yeah. room the sciencing room was probably primarily inspired by a lot of my time with the bright club crowd um yeah the sciencing room is um basically we take our silliest questions because if you say to people we actually do a lot of science in the street as well if you say to people on the street come up with a science question, they're probably going to take the piss. Um, and that's fine. We don't mind. We think that um, people asking any question shows engagement and we really want to prove that there's no wrong question. So the way that we thought to do that is by getting the scientists to almost perform, sometimes do a bit of stand-up comedy, sometimes doing some drawings on the stage to these questions. So those questions would include things like how much tea would kill a man? why is moon and uh yeah and uh could we create a spider pig um so with those questions we get scientists to perform them and that we've only done one event but we're hoping to do another very soon and it went really well uh people really enjoyed the format and yeah i just really meant to be a kind of silly scientist taking your silly questions and showing you that there's even serious science even inside a silly question <laughs> So thank you very much, Jamal, thank for your you, time. Thank no. you, It was fun to chat. It was, it, was, it was a really nice chat, wasn't it? Mm, yeah. It was on topic as well for us. Yeah, we should hang out more often. <laughs> <laughs> Send Hello again. Uh, that was Jamal being interviewed by Nat. Uh, thank you to both of them. And thank you for listening. Uh, so we're in the middle of releasing videos from our most recent Bright Club show. Uh, so please uh, head on over to our YouTube channel to find those videos. Um, today is actually the release of Nat's video uh, she performed in our most recent show. So please check that out. Uh, she was great. Uh, they were all great. But um, we're, here with, we're here from the rest of them here on the podcast soon enough. Apologies for the background noise at the moment. There seem to be people working outside my flat. How unreasonable. Uh, but um, so also, please uh, get in touch with us uh, if uh, if you like what we do and you want to get involved somehow, um, whether that's as a performer at a future show or as an organiser, um, helping us put together the shows or helping us uh, photograph the shows or um, manage our website or edit videos um, or uh, if you have other ideas of things that we could do that we're not doing at the moment, um, yeah, please get in touch. Uh, if you're not sure um, if you could perform, but you think maybe you could, uh, we run training and we give lots of help and advice. Uh, but also, you can come along to the training without any obligation to perform. So why not look into that? Uh, we, we run some pretty fun training sessions. Um, and then maybe you will be convinced you can perform. But if not, don't worry. Uh, yeah, so um, find us on Facebook with Bright Club Southampton or on Twitter or send us an email uh, which is uh, brightclubsotton at gmail.com um, Yeah, and that is it. I will be back in a couple of weeks. See you then. I love you. 
拜。